A very good morning, kia ora, and welcome to Koroi Hawkins, who is RNZ's Pacific editor and a busy man, as always. Now, uh, what's the significance of Marshall Islands renewing its compact with the United States, Freedom of Association Compact? Yes, yeah, so this, um, Marshalls is one of three Pacific nations, Palau and Ephesim, the other ones that have um, freely associated status with the United States. Unlike the other two, though, Marshalls has the... Uh, tricky situation of the U.S. nuclear weapons test legacy in their islands. So they've sort of held out and tried to get some of that, more of that on the table in their compact. Um, this is the, so Palau and FSM have signed theirs earlier. This is the third iteration of these arrangements. So they're funding arrangements uh, that the U.S. supports uh, these three um, freely associated states. Um, and from uh, speaking to our correspondent in the Marshall Islands, who's uh, uh, tuned into the live stream of the signing, it doesn't seem that they managed to get much traction on the addressing nuclear legacy side of things, but they do rely on this funding to run basically the whole country. So therefore um, have signed off with between negotiators from the U.S. and the Marshall Islands government. So this is State Department and the Marshall Islands government. The next step in this process is to go to Congress and to go to the Nitijela, which is the Marshall Islands Parliament, and they'll probably be hoping to try and get in some more traction on those issues there. All right. Now, Fiji's Prime Minister wants the Pacific declared an ocean of peace. Wouldn't that be a, a lovely outcome? But what specifically is he talking about? Yeah, so he's given a speech in Australia at the Law Institute, and um, he's basically calling for a... It sounds like he's pushing for something like the nuclear free Pacific Treaty, some sort of an arrangement of that sort, in terms of given uh, all of the increasing geopolitics in the region and the possibility of conflict being discussed, whether there is a possibility of all the Pacific leaders declaring that they're not going to have any conflict in this Pacific Ocean. So it's quite a bold undertaking for him. He's kind of come in and styled himself as that sort of a leader in the region. Uh, You remember not too long ago, Kiribati and the Micronesian states were threatening to break away from the forum and sort of break up that regionalism. And he personally went to Kiribati to meet with the Kiribati president and and restore those relations. So this is in line with that. It's It's quite a big posturing kind of a is move. Is it symbolic? And the question straight away becomes, where does this leave some of the alliances, informal or otherwise, that the states have formed with bigger nations that may ultimately be in charge of whether or not there's peace? Yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see what it actually can tell. So the, the main thing is he's planning to bring this to the Cook Islands um, next month for the Pacific Island Leaders Forum and have them look at it as a thing. And he's sort of looking at you know, the whole world's going nuts. And why can't we be, you know, a voice for peace or for for a, a better pathway? So that's that's his thinking. But we um, have uh, our reporters have spoken with Lowe Institute Pacific Islands Program Director Dr. Meg Keen, and she says that she thinks it'd be more about partnerships, alliances and processes rather than anything legally binding. Now, the Pacific Lawyers Association's concerned over discrimination specifically about women, and in what context are they talking? Yeah, so it's um, some. It's based on a, the a new report that's come out and looked at uh, the discriminations in in the sector, and um, some of the stuff that was come out was specific uh, for 
for the three highest rates of employment discrimination over the past three years in the legal profession. Pacific women, 32%. Pacific peoples, 28%. And local government workplace, 25%. So they, they're calling for more quality, more... I get an improvement of meaningful, constructive discussion in the law profession about how people are perceived when they go for promotions and for higher office. So this is a survey, I think about 2,000 lawyers took part. This is a survey looking at discrimination in various, uh, of various kinds. And when compiled, um, Pacific women the most discriminated against. Yes, that's 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 what's come out from it. And it builds on the previous surveys as well that have similar results. About 48% of respondents put employment discrimination down to their gender, 29% to their age, and 23% said it was because of their ethnicity. So some quite quite um, uh, difficult figures there. We asked, um, our reporters asked um, the Pacific Lawyers Association President, Aati Chand, what solutions could be. And, and she said, you know, cultural competency, fairness in promotion, requiring employers to ensure processes in organizations are fair. But she also had some quite um, uh, quite serious examples of some of the discrimination in the system. I think uh, one of the ones she said was that lawyers of, of Pacific heritage being mistaken for criminals in, 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 in courts, walking in with suits and being asked if they're there to defend themselves. I remember one example where someone asked for a cup of tea or something, just presuming in a meeting that um, I remember that as a specific example uh, that, that a Pacific person in a meeting would be there to serve rather than to take part or lead the meeting. Uh, interestingly, it wasn't just women. I think the, uh, the survey found Pacific peoples all Pacific people is three times more likely to face employment discrimination, but Pacific women the most likely. Yes, and and one of the things she did say that I thought was uh, quite positive. Like we, our reporter asked um, Ati Chan, like, what 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 should we be doing about this for young lawyers coming through the system? And she said, the more Pacific lawyers can be part of the legal profession and be part of that cultural change, the more pathways and can be created, and this can be made better. So, so just encouraging more Pacific Islanders to take part and do aim for a career in law. Bullying also an issue. We know uh, many professions and institutions, but again, worse against Pacific peoples. Yes, some really damning statistics there, yeah. Thank you. Uh, if anyone wants to find out more details, there's the um, RNZ Pacific report on, on the RNZ webpage, and there's a link right through to the survey. Uh, and also this morning, Karoi, uh, stronger tropical cyclones. Goodness. Yeah, yes. Um, it's going to be a challenging season. It is, and uh, um, uh, ironically, even as as our reporter had just spoken with Niwa about this, so the warning is that expecting nine to fourteen cyclones this cyclone season for the southern hemisphere. Uh, we actually have one we're watching right now, a system above Vanuatu that could potentially turn into a cyclone Monday, Tuesday next week. And um, uh, for New Zealand, obviously, the the ones that form above the Solomons and the Coral Sea. And come down through the Solomons tend to fizzle out um, in that area between Australia and the Solomons. But the ones that form above Vanuatu and come down the New Caledonia Way are the ones that we we see that usually end up down our way. So with the El Nino warmer waters, the risks are, of them staying strong obviously increase as well. So it's uh, looking like a busy uh, cyclone season coming up for the South Pacific, and the El Nino conditions drought as well. So that's a double whammy. It's interesting they've got quite Pacific. Uh quite specific <laughs> uh, about the Pacific uh, so you know d- determining Fiji, Wallace and Fortuna and Tonga expecting to see between three or four cyclones, Cook Islands, Niue 
Samoa and Tokelau can expect two to three. And what kind of planning um, happens typically ahead of cyclone season? Yeah, I, I think the planning is ongoing, like, it does not stop. Like basically, the the main thing that we found that the most successful that we've seen in terms of planning for this is Vanuatu. We had that massive cyclone Pam twenty fifteen. I think it was uh, just only in the double figures for the casualties, despite the massive size of destruction. And the main thing is that you have a plan, a central point to go, someone to bunker down, and then a plan for coming out of it. So those are the main main precautions. But usually, it's the the main thing is making sure everything loose is battened down. Your boats. Some people sink their boats. Others bring them up high onto land, um, and uh, yeah, just any loose metal timber lying around that can fly around and turn into projectiles. And are there good um, are there good warning systems operating in most parts of the Pacific? Yeah, they are. The problem is if these winds take just down take towers, oh, of course, then uh, it's a lifeline utility service we provide actually at RNZ Pacific in that we broadcast warnings throughout cyclones into the region and we have been, we have had, had feedback where we were the only signal going through on the shortwave. So it's another important thing for shortwave um, uh, broadcast into the region is that lifeline utility for cyclone services. Yamiki Nui, thank you so much as always. Koroi Hawkins. Koroi is RNZ Pacific News Editor.